8 and verse 5 through the 13 is our next portion of the Scripture that we're, as we're moving through Matthew. And uh, you can quickly familiarize yourself in uh, last week with just reading the first four verses. We'll briefly touch on that as it relates to uh, this passage this morning. But uh, before we start, just a, a brief word of prayer. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from Your law. We pray that You would speak, for we, Your servants, are hearing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the second miracle story, as we have uh, continued through, we're continuing through Matthew, and we've uh, finished the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. And so chapter 8 began a series of miracle stories. And last week we looked at the first one with the he- he- healing of the leper. This morning, we look at the faith of the centurion. And in this, we're introduced to a man who, like the leper, uh, had a great need, but uh, had very different circumstances than the lepers we'll, we'll get into, as you're probably already very familiar with it. Uh, the story of the centurion is more than just another healing miracle. It's, it's amazing, definitely. It's, it's uh, uh, just a, a wonderful story of healing and uh, restoration of this young man's servant. But there's so much more here. And and as I said last week, the overall theme of these stories is the authority of Christ. And this story is no different. It emphasizes the authority of Christ as well as, and very particularly, the Word of Christ. And and then particularly to this story, uh, it uh, highlights the requirement of a humble faith in Jesus. We could divide this story, and we will do for uh, the sermon, uh, into a, a an act uh, three a three act play, if you will. And so, Act One introduces our characters, Jesus and this leper, or and the centurion, tells us about the predicament that the centurion was in. Then, in Act Act Two, we find the main uh, significance of the story. We, this is where we find some teaching. Uh, in fact, the teaching that that we read, as Evan read with us, and, and that he asked us to read is the main teaching of this and really the main emphasis behind the whole passage. And then Act 3 is just simply the conclusion of the story as it was uh, the, there was a problem, Jesus healed, uh, healed, uh, fixed the problem, He healed the man or the boy, but that wasn't the main purpose of it. There was uh, what we read there in verses 10 through 12 are really the main uh, meat of this, uh, this passage here. But I want to go over to Luke chapter 7. Because uh, it's helpful for us. Luke has a, a, a parallel account of this. And so I'm going to read Luke 7, 1 through 10 uh, for you. And if you would uh, listen, and maybe you point out some of the uh, differences. Because Luke offers us uh, several details that Matthew does not. And they're not different stories. It's just that Luke is emphasizing different aspects of this story, whereas Matthew is very concisely. Uh, telling us what happened, and then um, giving us the the, the 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 teaching, getting to that, and and almost as if you read it, it's almost as an afterthought. Yeah, he got healed, but that's not why I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you the story because of what Jesus said during the healing. And so uh, we will read Luke, and so a lot of what we uh, how I'll explain it will come from Luke's passage as well. But I want to pay attention to why Matthew said it the way he said it. But it does help us. So I'm going to read just the first ten verses of Luke seven. 
It says, after he finished all his sayings, the, the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is placed in a different chronology in Luke than it was in Matthew. And so we're not specifically looking at the chronology of the events, but rather how Matthew... Remember I said last week there are so many things that happen in Jesus' life that John said that if we were to record all of them, there's none of books in the world that could contain all of the things that Jesus did. And so Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, when they write their Gospels, they took these different uh, stories and they place them in their gospel in a particular order to highlight particular things. Last week I explained Jesus, uh, His words are being emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Matthew takes several stories and examples of His works and emphasizes us uh, to us these things. And so uh, with Luke uh, to help us, we're going to try to understand Matthew and his, uh, his account of this centurion's faith. So in Act 1 of our story, we meet this man. Is The Bible calls him a centurion. Centurions were Roman soldiers. They were commanders in the Roman army. They were uh, in charge of 100 men. Uh, and I, I did a little bit of reading on that. It's very interesting if you're, if you're into military history and things. And uh, you, you can learn quite a lot of uh, helpful information about these centurions. But uh, I listened to one pastor, and I think of Harold... And uh, you got uh, Clay with you at Marines. I, I was listening to a, 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 a pastor this week that described the centurion like a Marine. He was, he was a tough man. He was, he was a, a brave, uh, heroic man. Centurions were considered the backbone of the, of the Roman army. They weren't uh, the highest up, but they were definitely men to be trusted. They were men who could be counted on and relied upon in many different ways. They were uh, men of a certain amount of influence and status and importance, not just among their soldiers, obviously, to be in charge of uh, 100 men. It was 80 soldiers and 20 uh, auxiliary men, uh, servants and things like that that would help with those things. But to be in charge of 100 soldiers and, and to, to have the command of those 100 lives uh, was no doubt a, a great responsibility. And so they had, had earned some, some importance. I read uh, several things that it, 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 it did not happen overnight. This was not something that you were given uh, your first year or two in. It would rather uh, decades into military service uh, before one became a centurion. These were the heroes in the battle. They led from the front. They were the first one over the wall. They were, uh, they were in the forefront on the thick of every fight. But, and so being a centurion, we can learn a little bit about this man 
uh, just because of what we know from history, that he must have been a brave man. He must have been a, an honorable man, a strong leader. He was an important man. But the reason that we read about the centurion, neither Matthew nor Luke really pay much attention to his military exploits. They really don't pay much attention to anything of heroism in battle uh, or uh, conquests or, or you know travels, adventures, nothing like that. The reason we have this story of the centurion is not for his great military accomplishments, but rather about a problem that he had. And his problem was that he had a servant who was dying. Now, Matthew doesn't say that he was dying, but we read, as we read in Luke there, that he said he was near the point of death. He was paralyzed. He was, uh, he was uh, in great torment. He was, he was just uh, in, in great uh, trouble, suffering greatly, and near the point of death, as Luke points out to us. Now, it's, it's helpful for us to recognize the, the culture in these times. Slaves were not treated well at all. They weren't really treated even as humans. Uh, and so this young slave to be uh, thought of uh, so fondly by his centurion is a very remarkable thing in and of itself. There were several writings back in the day, in these days, that uh, I, I came across just a few of them and, and looking at them. And, and the, the theme of this, uh, of this uh, time was that servants were nothing more than tools at the master's disposal. One writer suggested that the only difference between a slave and a hammer or a slave and a horse, was that the slave could talk. There was no other difference. And so, what you do with your tools is up to you. And what he would do with this slave was his business. And, and in their culture and in that, that time, uh, he would have been completely justified in doing whatever he wanted to with his, with his tools, with his servants. So, to have a sick and dying slave was probably not all that uncommon. And, and probably, in any other case, wouldn't have been uh, a difficult problem to have. Uh, we could probably imagine that it was viewed as nothing more than my wagon broke down and it's beyond repair. What are you going to do? You're just going to get a new one. Not going to give it a second moment's uh, thought. You're not going to break down and cry about it. You're certainly not going to uh, run the, uh, to a Jew and find uh, ask him for his help. Uh, you're just going to replace it. It's not a big deal. It's just you, you, you lost your, your hammer. You lost your cow. You lost your servant. And you move right on. Now, obviously, that's not how we view people today, but I'm telling you, that's how it was viewed in those in those days. But the centurion, obviously, as we read in our the centurion, in our story is very different. He actually cared about this servant. This servant was probably a young boy, uh, as uh, some of the, the the language here suggests that he was a, a young boy. And we read that he was paralyzed. He was suffering greatly, and as I said, Luke says he was near the point of death. Now, now, this is probably, again, not the first time that a young boy, a young servant boy, was near the point of death, was uh, suffering with some type of an ailment, and surely his master could find a replacement. I don't think that he was, uh, you know, some, uh, his, you know, mental abilities or his physical abilities were such that he was just irreplaceable. So why then was this, why is this centurion all uh, concerned with his servant with for his servant why is this story any different to us well luke told us that he highly valued the boy he he you could say he loved him he was he cared for him he was fond of him he was obviously not like the majority of the centurions not like the majority of the roman uh military leadership he actually cared about his 
his servants. And, and we can draw from that that if he cared about a servant boy, uh, no doubt he cared for his soldiers as well. And he desired to help uh, this, this boy. We don't know his name. We don't really know anything about him. The only reason he got to be included in Jesus' story is because he was the guy that was sick. And he was the guy that was healed. But he, the, the centurion, he loved this, his, his servant. He cared for him. And he wanted Jesus to help him. So uh, Luke tells us this interesting. I'm, I'm going to go back and, and, and read it for you again. Luke throws this one little statement in there in his uh, um, account that kind of turns the whole story in a brand new direction from what we would normally expect to happen. It says there in uh, verse number 3, it says that when the centurion heard about Jesus, that's the statement, he heard about Jesus. He heard that, that, that there was someone that could possibly help him. That's a very telling statement. Uh, because it doesn't say that he had met Jesus. It didn't say that he had heard Jesus speak. He didn't hear Jesus teach. He had not he did not know him personally. He simply heard about Jesus and decided to go do something about it. Well, I want to know what he had heard about Jesus. You know, what was the thing that he heard about Christ? Maybe he had heard as if you go back and read a little bit of Luke and you can back into chapter six and maybe you find out if the chronology is accurate there. Then maybe then uh, he had heard about how Jesus had simply cast out a demon from a synagogue that he built in Capernaum. And no doubt word would have traveled very quickly about something like that. But they're not parallel uh, uh, events. The, the casting out a demon normally wouldn't say, oh yeah, well he can heal my paralyzed servant. Maybe that's, maybe that's not what he heard, but maybe that's what it was. Whatever it was, we know that the, the knowledge that he had about Jesus led him to believe that Jesus could help him. Or more specifically, help his servant. And so he came to Jesus. Now, as you, as you notice, one of the key differences between Matthew and Luke is that the, Matthew tells us in the, in the way that the centurion himself is coming to Jesus. And so we kind of begin to imagine Jesus and the centurion are having this back and forth conversation. But then Luke tells us that first he sent uh, the elders of Israel to Jesus to speak on his behalf. Now, that should not concern us. There's no contradiction here. The, these uh, elders were speaking for the centurion, they were speaking in his place, and so uh, the, the, there's it, it jives, if you will. They they come together, and and so the centurion was speaking through these men later on, a group of friends, and so I will refer to it in that way, just because it's helpful for us to, as we try to paint this picture in our heads, how this uh, how this must have played out. So we have these elders, and they come to Jesus, and they speak on behalf of the centurion. Uh, they told Jesus how the man's servant was sick that he was greatly suffering, that he was near the point of death, and he needed Jesus to help. And then the elders said that, you know, Jesus, he's worthy to have you do this for him. We give you reasons. We say he's worthy because he loves Israel. He is not your typical Roman soldier. He, he loves our nation. Maybe he had become a, a proselyte. Maybe he had, be, had, had embraced the Jewish faith. Maybe he, was, he worshiped the God of Israel. Uh, but they said also specifically because he had built them their synagogue. Hey, he's worthy because he loves our nation. He is, he is uh, loyal to us. He, he loves us. And hey, he built our synagogue. He built our, our church for us. <laughs> Surely, Jesus, you can do him this favor. He is a patron of our community. We need to scratch his back. Uh, no doubt uh, this man, though a Gentile and representative of the Roman occupation, uh, and, and probably viewed as those belonging to the enemies of Israel, specifically this man, uh, was friendly to the Jewish community. 
He was a philanthropist. And the elders here uh, felt that Jesus kind of owed him a miracle, or at least that he deserved a miracle uh, because of his patronage. And surely Jesus would be willing to do this favor for someone who was so generous to the Jews and influential to the Roman authorities. So here we have an opportunity to have an inside friend, Jesus, help this guy out because he can help us later on. So then Jesus agrees to come and heal the boy. And this is really how we have we kind of finish up this act in the play. Jesus says, I'll come and heal. Now it's important to recognize here that it was very unusual for a Jew to enter the home of a Gentile. This is not something that normally would have happened. So for the fact that Jesus just said, I will come and heal him, is uh, very odd. It's, it's as odd as a touching a leper. Uh, and yet, um, because the houses of a Gentile were considered unclean. And therefore, a pious Jew would not make himself to be unclean by entering their home, just as he should have, and uh, in, uh, according to the custom, would have kept his distance from an unclean leper. So the fact that he was willing to go to the man's house and made actions uh, to, to carry that out is unusual. But as we've already learned in Matthew's telling of the leper, Jesus is willing to go where others are not, and willing to do what others cannot. And as the, as the curtain closes, if you will, on act number one, we prepare to see Jesus uh, entering the home of this Gentile to restore the boy to perfect health. Probably something like how he'd healed the leper. He touched the leper and made him perfectly clean. Now as we move into act number two, we can assume that word has traveled quickly to the centurion as he realizes that Jesus is coming to his home. Again, he, uh, he's, he's not there. He's not present. He has spoken on behalf of these intermediaries. And so no doubt some have run ahead uh, of Jesus and the group and said, Jesus is coming. He heard and he's coming and he's going to do a good thing for you. Um, maybe he, he, they told him how the elders had spoken up for him and, and kind of uh, vouched for him and, and spoken highly of him so that Jesus would be impressed and say, oh, we've got to help this guy. They, they, they gave him their full support. But the centurion was not pleased by this. He wasn't flattered by this. Rather, the opposite. Matthew writes, he responds with a feeling of unworthiness. Luke wrote that he, he quickly sent friends to meet Jesus to stop him before he got too far uh, and, and on his journey or too close to his house. And he gives him this message. Don't trouble yourself Come to my house to come to my house. I'm not worthy. Now, Matthew doesn't say all of that. Look at what Matthew does say. He says in verse number 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. Which goes completely opposite of what the elders of Israel said of him. He is worthy of having a miracle. You should go and help him. And the man here says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. He says, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, this is also, this, this whole story is filled with unexpected uh, responses and actions. This is not the expected response of a Roman centurion to a Jewish teacher or to a Jewish carpenter. The Romans had conquered Palestine. They were the ones in charge here. The Jews were subject to them. The Jews paid tribute to Rome. And they could be compelled. Jesus, remember in, in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, uh, if, if someone compels you to go a mile, go with them too. He's talking about the Roman soldiers and how that they could compel and force anyone to carry their pack for a mile. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when they do that, 
you've got to do it, but go to. These are the guys that can do that. So when he says, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house, that's opposite of what you would expect him to say. We would expect him to say, hey, Jesus, you're not worthy to come into my house. You're a Jew. I'm a Roman. And not just that. I am a centurion. I have status. I have influence. I have servants under me. I have, I have so much that you don't have. You're not worthy to meet me. And yet that's exactly the opposite of what he says. He appeals to Jesus. He requests his help, not commands it. And we now hear him saying that he's not worthy to have Jesus enter his house. How backwards this is, and yet how true. Notice first the great humility that the centurion displayed. He said there in verse, in verse number um, 10 there, Oh, no, verse number 10, verse number uh, 8. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The great humility he displayed. Now Luke tells us that the reason that he sent representatives to Jesus instead of coming to himself was because he felt, not because he felt he was too important, but because he felt that Jesus was more important. Was He was too unworthy. Maybe he recognized that the, the Messiah had, had a mission to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Remember when Jesus was uh, confronted by the Syrophoenician woman and she said, uh, come and heal my daughter. And he said, uh, it's not meat that, the, that the, the, the dogs are fed with the children's food. And, and he was saying there, and we, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago and we're going to get to that. I think it's in Matthew chapter 10. But he was teaching there that not he wasn't insulting her, calling her a dog. It was, it was that, that he was there for the Jews. The Gentile mission would come later with Peter and, and Paul and, and, and the rest of uh, the, the, in the New Testament. But at Jesus' mission was primarily to the Jews. And here and there, he would help the Gentiles, much like he helped the Syrophoenician woman, much like he is about to help the Roman centurion here. But that, that wasn't his purpose. Maybe that's why the, the centurion uh, said, uh, you know, I'm not worthy to have you come. Maybe he realized that being a Gentile, he was unclean. And Jesus, a pious Jew, would not want to have anything to do with him. Maybe that's why he said it. Maybe he simply recognized the divine nature in Christ. I would love to find out if this man uh, became a Christian. If this is why, or if this simply he recognized that Jesus was a miracle worker. I would love to find out that, that this man uh, is, in, is in heaven today because he recognized in Jesus something greater than magic tricks. He, he saw the divine nature and in that saw his own unworthiness. Not unworthy because he's a Gentile. Not unworthy because he's a Roman. Unworthy because he is a sinner. And whatever it was, whatever these, these reasons were, uh, he didn't think himself worthy to approach Jesus himself. And so the first time, he didn't even come. He sent elders. Then the second time, he didn't come. And to stop Jesus from coming to his house, he didn't, he didn't go himself. He sent friends. I'm not worthy. And this is not, hey, I don't have time for you. I'm too busy for you. Uh, yeah, take care of this for me. It was, I don't feel like I'm worthy to talk to you. I don't feel like I'm worthy to, to be in your presence, Jesus. I just, and he says, simply just say the word. I, I don't deserve to have you come to my house. The centurion here displays great humility. But not only that, he displays great faith. We go on there. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, in my study this week, to help me to, to grasp this whole, this whole uh, story together, I, I condensed it down to just a series of statements. And if we were to uh, condense it like that, it, it, just little short descriptive statements, 
the first part of this story would be this. Heal my servant. So verses 5 and 6 would be, heal my servant. Verse 7 would be, I will come and heal your servant. That's not what the centurion asked, but that's what Jesus said he would do. Heal my servant. I will come and heal your servant. And in a great faith, the third statement is the centurion says, don't come, just heal. Again, it's not attitude of pride or arrogance. This This is great humility. It's not, don't bother me, just do what I asked. I don't want you, I just want what you have to give me. That's not his attitude at all. It's the opposite there. I am not worthy. Don't trouble yourself to come to me, but say the word and it will be done. That's great faith. Because up to this point, Matthew has not recorded any long distance miracles. Meaning, Every miracle that, Jesus, that Matthew records Jesus has done, he's there physically. He's present when he does it. And if that's all that he does, that's amazing in and of itself. But never has Jesus, at least in Matthew's recording, done anything long distance, not actually being there. But this centurion has the faith to believe that it is possible. That just like the leper in the first four verses says, Jesus, I know you can. I'm wondering if you will. The centurion says, you don't have to be here to heal my servant. You can simply say the word and it will be done. Yep, and and by faith, the centurion declared that Jesus could simply speak to him. How could he do this? How could he how could Jesus do this? Well, he gives us the his reasoning, his logic here in verse number nine. He says, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So as a military man, he understood the power of being under authority and having authority over others. His own authority as a centurion came directly from Rome and Caesar himself. So when he spoke, he spoke in place of Caesar. When he spoke, Rome spoke. When the centurion gave an order, it was the, the, the order that the, the, the Roman soldier heard, heard it from Caesar himself. And so he understood what it's like to be under authority, and he understood what it's like to have authority. And he says, because I recognize what authority I have, I know you can do this. He recognized that Jesus didn't have authority that came from Rome. He had a greater authority. His authority came from God Himself. And so when Jesus spoke, He spoke with the authority of God. And the three examples that He gives us, uh, go, come, and do this, are verbal commands that He expects to be carried out immediately and precisely. And there's a confidence here in these commands that His orders will be obeyed. And He doesn't have to go check on it. He doesn't have to go confirm it. All he has to do, and, and, it's in, and, it's, and it's the way he says it here, come. And he expects him to come. It's not, did you come? Are you going to come? I told you to come. Come. He will come. Go. He will go. Do this. It will be done. Not because he's a trustworthy servant, but because I have that authority. He is under my authority it will be done. And he recognized in Jesus the authority, not just over people, but over all. 
He recognized his authority was greater than his own. Jesus' authority was greater than his own or even Caesar's. Jesus had command over sickness and disease and unclean spirits. John Calvin wrote that he who by mere expression of his will restores health to men must possess supreme authority. And that's what the centurion saw in Jesus. He knew that at the very command from Jesus' lips, it would be immediately carried out whether Jesus was there or not. You don't have to come. Just say the word. It will be done. I believe in your authority. In Matthew 10, Matthew 8.10 tells us then that when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled. Jesus heard this, he marveled and said unto those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now there are only two times in the Bible when it tells us that Jesus marveled at something. That to marvel means that he stood in wonder. It was like Jesus saying, whoa, that's amazing. Have you ever marveled at something? Maybe you've been to Mount Rushmore and you stand up there and you think, whoa. Maybe you've been outside during a, a, a crazy lightning and thunderstorm. Or you've seen uh, Niagara Falls up close or something that's just uh, crazy. Or guys, when you were standing at the altar and, and your bride-to-be came in view, whoa, amazement. You marveled. And only two times in the entire Scripture does it tell us that Jesus marveled. Here, in Matthew and Luke's story of this man's faith, and the only other time is in Mark chapter 6. I won't go and read it to you, but I'll tell you and you can read it later on. Mark chapter 6, Jesus had gone back to His hometown of Nazareth. And there He had uh, been teaching, but it says that the people were offended at Him. Their, their response to His teaching was, this is Joseph's son. He, how did he get this authority? He's no prophet. We remember him growing up. Those of you who've been here all of your life and you people come home, from they grew up here and they're like, oh, I remember you and I, I remember when you were four and I remember when you got in all this kind of trouble and you did all this. That's what Jesus did when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he's teaching them as a grown man, as the prophet of God, and everywhere else they recognized in him great power and authority and yet in Nazareth they're going, Joseph's kid? Where did he learn to talk like that? Who does he think he is to be able to say such things? And the Bible tells us that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Mark wrote that it's because of this unbelief he could do no great works there except save a few sick people. That's all he did there. And these are the two times in Scripture when we imagine Jesus standing with his mouth open, if you will. Wow. First, because of a man's faith. And second, because of a town's lack of faith or unbelief. Now back in Matthew 8, we see that Jesus is amazed at this Gentile's faith. And He turned to those following Him and said in verse number 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This was both praise for the centurion and a rebuke on the Jewish nation. Because nowhere in Israel, not in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth, his hometown, had anyone exhibited this kind of faith in him. Listen to how Jesus continues there in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now those who are from the east and the west, he's talking about are the Gentiles. These are the ethnic outsiders. These are those who do not belong, and yet they are the ones who will come to the kingdom banquet. Not getting too far into it, there is what he's talking about here is the is the great banquet that will be in the last day. Then the Jews greatly anticipated this. One of the things I read this morning, uh, this week, was that one of the things they looked forward to the most was because there would be no Gentiles there, there would be no unclean people there. That's why they were really looking forward to this big meal. Revelation 19, you can read about it, the Great Supper, and the Jews looked forward to that gener- that that celebration. Gentiles were not expected to be there since they were not a part of the chosen people. Yet, Jesus here destroys that false assumption. He says that the Gentiles will enter the kingdom. They will sit down at the table. They will feast with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was considered a great honor in and of itself. They weren't even expected to get into the kingdom, and now they are equally as welcome as the great men of their heritage, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, if Jesus marveled at what the centurion said to him in don't come, simply speak the word, you know that these people are marveling at what Jesus just said to them. You mean that these unclean pagans are going to be allowed into the kingdom? You mean that that the Gentiles, we're going to spend eternity in heaven with them? But the next declaration, if they, if that knocks your socks off, wait till what Jesus says the next thing, because it says the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as sons or as children of the kingdom, they are the ones, the Jews, as he's talking about, they should have belonged. That's why they're considered sons. They should have entered, but Jesus says they will not. In fact, they will be thrown out of the kingdom into outer darkness, they will be thrown into a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We recognize that as the place called hell. These Jews assumed that as God's chosen people, they would automatically enter the kingdom of heaven. After all, they're the sons of Abraham. They worship the one true God, and they consider the kingdom to be their birthright. But Jesus says otherwise. Jesus revealed that faith is the key to enter the kingdom, not pedigree, not lineage. Here, Jesus previews the great Gentile inclusion of the kingdom of heaven. It's not only for the Jews. And it's not by Jewish customs and traditions that people will enter the kingdom of God. It is only by faith. That means that a Gentile who has faith will and can enter the kingdom. But a Jew that does not have faith will not. No one is worthy to enter. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, and not by ancestral heritage. Those who would enter the kingdom must, like the centurion, recognize in themselves a complete unworthiness and come to Christ in that humility. They must recognize as well that they are not worthy to have Christ come to them. Do we deserve Jesus? Do we deserve Christmas? Do we deserve the fact that Jesus came? No. He didn't come because we deserve it. He came because He loves us. 
They must recognize within Jesus all the authority of heaven to accomplish his will by his word. And those who do enter the kingdom of heaven will do so by faith. And Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing the words of Christ. Now, the religious elders thought that the centurion deserved Jesus' favor based on his works. But they, as the sons of the kingdom, deserved God's blessing simply because of who they were. Those sons who assumed they belonged by heritage will soon be thrown out. While those undeserving, like the centurion, who recognize their own unworthiness that is not based on merit, but by grace alone, and those who come and ask by faith will receive not only the compassion of Christ in this life, but a place at the table in the kingdom to come. Don Carson wrote, in this attitude, the centurion joins with the leper in a stance described by the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As the story comes to an end, the final scene is played out. We find that the miracle was, and the miracle was, uh, that was requested was granted. The boy was healed. Jesus sent the centurion's friends back declared the servant would be healed just as he believed. And Matthew finishes the story by telling us that he was immediately healed. This wasn't a progression. This didn't happen over time. He didn't get his health back gradually. It happened that very hour. Those friends who arrived back at the centurion house found a happy and healthy boy walking around and no doubt a rejoicing master who knew that Christ had answered his request. So in closing, when we look at this previous passage, verses 1-4, through we considered that we're all lepers, spiritually unclean, unable to help ourselves. We're all in need of the healing touch of Christ, the great physician. But this passage and this centurion remind us, in a new way, of our own unworthiness to come to Christ. We must not be like the religious leaders, the elders who thought that their heritage had earned them a place in the kingdom simply because of who they were, they belong. Or that a man's works make him deserve Christ's grace. We must see our emptiness. Humbly come to Him by faith. Humble faith that can heal and save. Confident faith. That Jesus speaks with the authority of God. And that He, in fact, is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And that what Jesus says will be accomplished. Let's pray together.